Hey everyone, I'd like to take a minute to talk to you all about the upcoming Unforgivables deep dive and bonus Q&A on the Stereo app. Stereo is where people have started talking together again. You can be your very own talk show host, or if listening is more your jam, jump on the Stereo Talk and ask all of those questions you've been itching to ask. You can join the Unforgivables Saturdays live at 1pm Eastern Time for discussions and behind the scenes segments. We'll go through the process and talk about all things podcasting and share some tips and tricks on producing great content. All you have to do is download the Stereo app to hear the live discussions, and you can even be a part of the conversation. Maybe you have an idea for a new episode, or a juicy piece of information on one of these cases to share. Or maybe you're just one of those people who listen to a show and scream your opinions into the abyss hoping we can hear you. Well, now we can. Be sure to join the Unforgivables on Stereo, so we can talk directly to you about all things podcasting, and, of course, true crime. All right, does anyone know of any legal reason why the court should not now pronounce sentence? No, Your no. Honor. All right. Well, I will, will state for the record the only available sentence in all of these cases is life. The only difference between these various sentences is that in regards to count 10, there is available to the court a sentence referred to commonly as a hard 40 sentence. Not too long before her husband tied up and strangled Shirley Vianne Relford to death in her home while her six-year-old son watched through the crack of a door in March of 1977, Paula found an early draft of Raider Shirley Locke's poem, in which her husband writes, Thou shalt not scream, but lay on cushion and think of me and death. Yet, when she questioned him about the rough draft, Raider casually dismissed it as an assignment for a class he was taking at Wichita State University, where he was a student at the time. His wife didn't ask any further. Not even when her husband marked up newspaper stories on the BTK serial killer with what he called his own secret code. If she had pride, had she asked questions, the good wife may never have made the flippant comment that almost cemented her as BTK's next victim. Paula Rader knew how close she came to reaching her vow of till death do we part. One morning over the breakfast table, Rader found himself savoring the letter the Wichita Eagle published from BTK when Paula began reading the newspaper over her husband's shoulder. Look at that, she said. He spells that word the same way you do. Later, Raider admitted to thinking, I thought I had to kill her then. But she didn't say anything more, so I just let it go. In the end, Paula Raider would be just another victim, denying ever having any suspicions that her husband was BTK, insisting to the police that Dennis Raider was a good man, a great father, and that he would never hurt anyone. Was that why BTK stopped killing after Dolores Davis in January of 1991? Was Dennis Rader simply enjoying the life of a family man? While most serial killers, like Jeffrey Dahmer, are compelled to kill more and more frequently, Rader's 10 murder victims spanned three decades, beginning in 1974 with the Otera family and ending in 1991 with Dolores Davis. After brutally murdering the Oteros, BTK waited only a few months before he would put down Catherine Bright, but then waited three years until 1977 before striking again when he murdered both Shirley Vienne and Nancy Fox that year. Almost a decade, eight years to be exact, would pass before Raider targeted his neighbor, Marine Hedge, in 1985. Vicky Wiggle would be strangled in her home the following year, yet BTK waited nearly five more years before invading the home of his final victim, Dolores Davis, in 1991. And so, I wonder, was BTK's scattered killing pattern, and the reason it ended, 
the result of the demands of a family man? Did it overrule the desires of a monster? Maybe so. After all, Raider admitted himself that after Paula told him she was pregnant with their first child, their daughter back in 1978, he was so excited for us and our folks. We were now a family, with a job and a baby. I got busy. Later, referring to the last two murders near the Park City home where he lived, he would tell police, This is not really good serial killer business. This is right at my back door. I started getting lazy the last few years. Catherine Ramsland, a professor of forensic psychology at DeSales University who worked with Dennis Rader to write the book, Confessions of a Serial Killer, the untold story of Dennis Rader, the BTK killer, shed some light into his killing pattern and reveals a horrifying detail. The monster had always meant to go on. Raider's life circumstances and demands as an employee, husband, and father made it difficult for Raider to devote the time necessary to extensively stalk, research, and carry out the attacks, according to Catherine Ramsland. When discussing his brutal crimes with Ramsland, BTK related to the criminologist that he had to do this carefully, and it had to be when he had pockets of opportunity that allowed him to pretend he was doing something else, like library research for a course he was taking, or being out of town, or going overnight on a Boy Scouts camping trip. He always had to have a cover story. While years may have passed between his killings, BTK told Ramsland that he was never dormant. He was always looking, he had told her, even giving the criminologist a list of 55 projects he had tracked over the years. They were detailed lists with names of the projects, dates, locations, circumstances, and things that would have happened to the people had he had the full amount of time that he needed. It's not like he was inactive during those periods of time. It's just that he didn't have all the right circumstances to go forward with something. Circumstances like what happened in April of 1979. 63-year-old Anna Williams escaped death by returning home much later than expected that night. Raider admitted to becoming obsessed with Williams and was absolutely livid when she evaded him. He spent hours waiting for her at home, but became impatient and left when she didn't return early enough from visiting friends. Police responded to a burglary call where Anna Williams came home to find some jewelry, clothing, and cash missing. The basement window was broken and the phone line had been cut. Nearly two months later, on June 15th, she received an envelope with a poem, a sketch, clothing, and the same jewelry that had been taken during the break-in. In the poem, BTK had written that he regretted that the woman had taken so long to get home that night. An identical envelope containing similar items and the same poem arrived at Cake TV the next day. The poem was titled, Oh Anna, Why Didn't You Appear? It was now a new millennium, and by early 2004, the investigation into BTK was considered a cold case. And then, March came, and with it, a letter from BTK. That 30th anniversary article, published by the Wichita Eagle, suggested that BTK may have moved away or may have even died. It also featured an interview with a local Wichita attorney who mentioned that during his final semester at school in 2003, he had chosen BTK as a subject for a class assignment. During his presentation, however, none of the other students expressed any recognition. Not one student in the class could recall BTK. It was impossible for Dennis Rader to ignore. And he thought to himself, did they forget what fear felt like? In response to the article, Rader sent a letter using the return address of Bill Thomas Kilman to the newspaper. Along with claiming responsibility for the murder of another 1986 cold case, that of Vicky Wergel, Rader would even provide photos of her body in various poses and a copy of her driver's license. Police said they had no crime scene photograph of Wergel's body because it was removed by medical service workers before officers arrived. 
BTK had dubbed Ricky Regal a pianist, his project Piano. I'll never forget that day, said former Wichita police detective. We opened it up, and it was pictures of Vicky Wagle, who was killed in 1986 in her home. Needless to say, the reports of BTK's return were explosive. From there, Rader would embark on a communication frenzy, mailing letters or packages to news media or simply leaving them in parks or parking lots across Wichita. He would send and leave 10 of these communications until they would eventually lead to his capture in February of 2005. It was in May of 2004 when the Wichita TV station Cake received another letter. It contained chapter headings for the BTK story and even a proposed book he had been writing about himself, two fake IDs, and a word puzzle. By June 9th of the same year, when his own children were now grown adults, BTK grew even more bold, taping a package to a stop sign at the corner of First and Kansas Roads in Wichita. It had graphic descriptions of the Otero murders. He'd also included a sketch labeled the sexual thrill is my bill. Also enclosed was a chapter list for a proposed book titled The BTK Story. From July of 2004 to December of 2004, Raider would send three more letters and packages. One manila envelope dropped into a UPS box contained cards with images of terror and bondage of children pasted on them. A poem threatening the life of the lead investigator and a false autobiography with many details about Raider's life. Another package left in Wichita's Murdoch Park, held the driver's license of Nancy Fox, which was noted as stolen from the crime scene, as well as a doll that was symbolically bound at the hands and feet and had a plastic bag tied over its head. In January of 2005, Raider attempted to leave a cereal box in the bed of a pickup truck at a Home Depot in Wichita, but the box was discarded by the truck's owner. It was later retrieved from the trash after Raider asked what had become of it in a later message. Surveillance tape of the parking lot from that date revealed a distant figure driving a black Jeep Cherokee, leaving the box in the pickup. In February of 2005, more postcards were sent to Cake, and another cereal box left at a rural location was found to contain another bound doll, hung from a pipe. And then, not much later on February 26, the day after his arrest, BTK would make press again, his name the top story on nearly every news channel across the state. It was the type of coverage and fame that PTK craved. Yet it was the spotlight Dennis Rader, the family man, never wanted. Hey everyone, I'd like to take a minute to talk to you all about the upcoming Unforgivables deep dive and bonus Q&A on the Stereo app. Stereo is where people have started talking together again. You can be your very own talk show host, or if listening is more your jam, jump on the Stereo Talk and ask all of those questions you've been itching to ask. You can join the Unforgivables Saturdays live at 1 p.m. Eastern Time for discussions and behind-the-scenes segments. We'll go through the process and talk about all things podcasting and share some tips and tricks on producing great content. All you have to do is download the Stereo app to hear the live discussions, and you can even be a part of the conversation. Maybe you have an idea for a new episode or a juicy piece of information on one of these cases to share. Or maybe you're just one of those people who listen to a show and scream your opinions into the abyss hoping we can hear you. Well... Now we can. Be sure to join the Unforgivables on Stereo so we can talk directly to you about all things podcasting and, of course, true crime. In the end, it was BTK's ego that was his eventual undoing. That and a floppy disk. In March of 2004, Dennis Rader was taking sickening pleasure in playing cat and mouse with investigators. Yet, he was itching to take the game a step farther. Before Rader could bring it to the next level, though, he had questions. So, he began his research. 
uh, over the summer, myself and the detectives that I work with at uh, Computer Crimes, uh, we went up to Park City Police Department to help them execute a search warrant on an eBay fraud case. And uh, while we were there, we wandered back to the back where there's a pop machine or candy machine or something. And, and uh, uh, we're standing there talking, and this guy comes out of the, the neighboring office space. And uh, he starts talking to us, and he's asking us whether emails can be tracked and how to trace emails. So, uh, you know, we're very customer-oriented, so we want to be very helpful. So we explained all the details about how, yeah, if you send us an email, that we're going to track it down. And, and, you know, we look at the headers. We all do all this kind of stuff. And... You know, absolutely that, you know, we'll find you if you send us an email. So later on after the arrest of Dennis Rader, and um, one of the guys was there with me, Brett, he gets to thinking about that, and, and he says, you know, when we really remember that guy, he said, that was this guy, that was Dennis Rader who was up there at the time. You know, it was his offices, and, and you know, he worked out of that, that city building. And so he was actually the guy that, you know, while we were up there to do the search warrants, was asking us, questions on how we would track an email if someone sent us an email. So, <clears throat> you know, it's just kind of ironic and, and likely that he was actually querying that because he wanted to know if, uh, you know, if he sent the news media, the police department, a, uh, an email on behalf of BTK, whether we'd be able to track him. So we assured him under no uncertain terms that, yes, we would find him if he sent us an email. That would have been summer of '04. He was arrested in February of, of 05. So it was about six months before he was arrested. And I had been out on search warrants the whole time since the arrest because we had several locations where we were doing search warrants. And uh, so I hadn't really had a chance to watch any of the interview or see him or anything. So I poked my head into the uh, room there where they were hooking him up and I introduced myself, say, it's, it's uh, nice to finally put a face to go along with the name that I found on the floppy disk. And he said, oh, so you're the one, huh? I said, yeah. And uh, so we you know, chatted back and forth for a moment. He made a comment that uh, if he ever escaped, if he ever got out of there, he'd have to find me and stuff my mouth full of a case of floppy disks. And now that it'd be in 2014, even if somehow he did escape, you couldn't find a case of floppy disks if you wanted to. So I think I'm probably pretty safe from that part of the threat. With the knowledge that his email could be traced, Dennis Rader turned to Plan B instead which began with a question for the police, included in a letter, along with a gold chain, a photocopied cover of a novel about a killer who had bound and gagged his victims, and several 3x5-inch index cards, one of which gave instructions for communicating with BTK through the newspaper. Can I communicate with a floppy disk and not be traced to a computer? Be honest, he had asked. Let me know. In the classified ads for the Wichita Eagle, I'll look for that ad, and if I see it, give me a couple of weeks to send you something. The police assured the killer that it was safe to do so, answering his question, Rex, it will be okay. So, he did. And what Dennis Rader thought was the start of a new chase was in fact the beginning of what would lead to his capture. The purple floppy disk Rader sent to police didn't just contain one valid file bearing the message, this is a test. Police found metadata embedded in a deleted Microsoft Word document that was, unknown to Rader, still stored on the floppy disk. The metadata contained the words, Christ Lutheran Church, and the document was marked as last modified by Dennis. An online search determined that a Dennis Rader was president of the church council. Police also drove by Rader's home and took note of the black Jeep Cherokee parked out front, the same type of vehicle seen in the Home Depot surveillance footage. It was solid, circumstantial evidence, but police needed more direct evidence to detain him. 
To build their case, police obtained a warrant to test a pap smear taken from Raider's daughter at the Kansas State University Medical Clinic. DNA test results showed a familiar match between the pap smear and the sample taken from Vicki Wargle's fingernails, indicating that the killer was closely related to Raider's daughter. These results, combined with the other later evidence, was enough to issue an arrest warrant. The biggest shock I'd ever had. He was he said, the nicest guy in the world. I would have probably gave him a key to wash my dog if I had to when I was leaving town. Raider, a churchgoer here at Christ Lutheran Church in North Wichita, and not just any member of the church, the president of the Congregation Council. It's consistent with what we had thought all along, was that it was an individual who blended well into the community, was basically invisible to his neighbors and friends and co-workers because he was just an ordinary guy. Him sending that disc is what cracked the case detectives would later remember. If he had just quit killing and kept his mouth shut, we might never have connected the dots. And so, Dennis Rader, the family man, and BTK, the serial killer, was arrested while driving near his home. Rader was still upset about the apparent betrayal and the hours after his arrest, expressing shock at the fact police would intentionally deceive him, going so far as to say he had a good thing going with the detectives, even referring to the police lieutenant by his first name. It was a strategy devised by the FBI, recommending that one person be the designed go-between to build trust. And it worked. Raider even got so comfortable during his police interview that at one point he told the police officer to go ahead and put BTK in the lid of his drinking cup before putting it in the refrigerator. After his arrest, police would find what Raider himself referred to as the mother load, right beneath their very noses. Kept within a file drawer in his office down the hall from the Park City Police Department was a treasure trove of terror. The stuff movies are made of. A Polaroid of Raider wearing a pair of woman's pantyhose and bra, strung up in a mock hanging in his parents' basement. Blueprint drawings of a barn turned torture chamber and naked women in various positions of bondage. Underwear taken from the woman he had bound, tortured, and killed. Raider hoarded a cache of newspaper clippings, reporting on the murders and even essays describing them down to the finest of details. Also inside were notes filed under AFLV for afterlife concepts for victims. Shirley Vian Relford would be his house servant. Little Josie, he wrote, would be my star young maiden that I will teach sex to. Neither Paula Raider nor her children attended any of the court hearings which began on June 25, 2005, where the husband and father would recount each of the ten murders in chilling detail, showing little emotion and even less regret. Survivor Kevin Bright was there though, among the other tearful family members and loved ones of BTK's victims. No remorse, no compassion, he had no mercy, said Kevin Bright, the brother of victim Catherine Bright, who himself was shot but managed to flee. When Raider gave his statement during sentencing, those in the courtroom related it to an Academy Awards acceptance speech congratulating the officers on catching him, and even remarking on a PowerPoint presentation. Your Honor, Cedric County, the victims, I do realize that the crimes have committed, uh, the atrocious crimes I've committed is, is continued as a, the Cedric County is a monster. I brought the community, my family, the victims, dishonor. There's no, and it's all self-centered, as what you could call, I would call a sexual predator. Today is my final judgment for me. The last couple of days in court, presented by the state, their PowerPoint presentation was very powerful. Like a couple of things I might point out toward the last, but overall, most of that was true. And I think the Cedric County ought to be proud that they 
do have a good state. That the evidence was there earlier, the DNA, the floppy. There was, there was no way that I was going to get out of this. With remorse, responsibility, and corrections are the concepts of apology. The old me started whatever it was, Factor X, sexual predator. The volcano was the building of all those years was the Otero. And probably the most devastating and upsetting, let me tell everybody, is Josephine. I just don't know. Uh, Self-centered, very selfish, and it exploded on that day. And it did continue, off and on. Dishonesty, definitely. Dishonesty, probably the first thing to the people that I encountered, that they trusted me, that I was willing to tie them up, take their money, and leave. And then I killed them. That's dishonesty for my family. <coughs> but, um, lie and cheat to be self-interest to my employers and to the county you know, the taxpayers money so I appreciate the family the friends and all I can be thankful for and I think that will keep me from finally going to the dark side our hell and finally I final apologize to the victims families there's no way that I can ever repay them. Dennis Rader's wife Paula, who was experiencing total disbelief, confusion, a lot of pain and bewilderment, received an emergency divorce in 2005, with Rader relinquishing all claim to any of the assets the couple acquired over their years of marriage. The family home would be torn down in January of 2007. Only Carrie, Raider's daughter, remains in contact with her father and has since written a book on what it's like to be the daughter of one of the world's most notorious serial killers. Raider would later say to investigators that if I thought I ever had to be put away, I wanted to be hung. But I guess they don't do that anymore. In the end, Dennis Raider was charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder, including a hard 40, 40 years without the possibility of parole. He pleaded guilty to all of the charges on June 27, 2005. Because BTK committed his heinously brutal crimes before Kansas State's 1994 reinstatement of the death penalty, he was sent to El Dorado Correctional Facility to serve his 10 life sentences in solitary confinement. Dennis Rader is allowed five one-hour periods per week out of his 80-square-foot cell. Thanks for listening to The Unforgivables. For more information, visit theunforgivables.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please feel free to leave a review or a five-star rating. It really does help.